worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardionerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardionerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. We are so excited to discuss another case and learn from cardiology fellows and colleagues from the University of Connecticut Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. I'd like to welcome to the show Drs. Mansour Al-Najam, Yasser Adil, Justice Oranifo, and Srini Nadadur. Guys, welcome to the show. So excited to learn from you and have you on. Would you please introduce yourselves? Hello, Cardio Nerds. Hello from Connecticut. My name is Mansour. I'm one of the third years. I'm the current chief fellow at the University of Connecticut. I'm originally from Saudi Arabia. I moved into the U.S. five years ago. I did my residency back in Massachusetts at the St. Elizabeth's Medical Center, moved into the University of Connecticut program. Currently so excited, so happy to be part of this amazing collaboration. My future, I'm currently applying into electrophysiology. Hi, hello, Cardionais. I'm Justice, I'm one of the second year fellows. Just like Mansour, I actually moved to U.S. five years ago did my residency at UMass, Massachusetts, and now I'm a second-year fellow here. I'm also interested in applying to electrophysiology. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Hello, listeners. My name is Yasser. I'm one of the second-year fellows at UConn. I'm originally from Pakistan, and I moved around four years ago to U.S. to start my residency at Yale Bridgeport here in Connecticut. After my residency, I got accepted at UConn for my cardiology fellowship, and here I am in my second year. My future plans are to do intervention, which hopefully I'm applying this year. Thank you for having me. Great morning, everyone. Thanks for the Cardio Nerds to have us here and share our interesting case with everyone on this platform. My name is Srinivas. I'm originally from southern India. I did my residency in Worcester at St. Vincent Hospital. I love jogging and listening to audiobooks and podcasts. And I'm a second-year fellow here at UConn, and I wish to proceed further with interventional cardiology. And again, thanks for having me here. So guys, I just have to say that for this fellows discussion part of this episode, there are six voices. 
And I think each one of us are from a different country, you know, originally. So this is a, this is very cool and warms my heart to see so much diversity being highlighted in our field, which is, which is just awesome. So super sweet, super sweet. Mansoor, Yasser, Justice, Srinivas, we are delighted to be here. You are currently training in Farmington, Connecticut, and I, I personally haven't been there and I'm excited to be there. Hook me up after COVID. But for today, take us to your favorite spot. I'm looking at your pictures that you provided for us to get to know you and your faces. You have beautiful backdrops of wonderful, wonderful skies and grass and fields behind your photos. Tell me where we're going for this amazing conversation. And let's get started with some amazing cardiology. Hey, yeah, exactly, Dan. There is plenty of places where we can take you here in Connecticut. You know, it's at the part of New England and part of the tri-state area. There is plenty of nearby places where we can go and have fun. My personal favorite that I'm going to invite you guys to go today is the uh, Hubline Tower. It's 15 minutes away from us. It's at a small town called Simsbury, top of the Talcott Mountain. There's a roughly a hundred years old tower called the Hubline Tower. Hubline was one of the elite of Hartford a hundred years ago. And one day he was hiking there with his fiance and he promised her that he will build her a castle. And he actually did. To get there, we need to hike for about two miles. It's uh, somewhat moderate. It's not too terrible, but it worths it at the end. Great 360 panoramic view where you can see Hartford, you can see Farmington, you can see the Connecticut River. It's one of my favorite places. And actually during the summer, fall time, plenty of food, music, festivals where we can enjoy all of these in one spot. It's definitely one of my favorite spots here in Connecticut. All right. Great hike. Oh my gosh. The beautiful scenery. What better way to enjoy a Sunday in a Labor Day weekend? Easy to stay away from people as we protect ourselves and the community in times of COVID. This is just absolutely gorgeous. Thank you so much for bringing us here. And let's do what we love doing at the Hupline Tower, discussing some awesome cardiology. What do you guys have for us? All right. So today we chose to present one of the most interesting cases I've encountered in my fellowship so far, and we would like to share it with you guys. So one day I was the fellow on the cardiology service here at UConn John Dempsey Hospital in Farmington. Just parking my car, I got a call from one of our AD colleagues and he was telling me, Mansoor, I need you at the bedside. I have a very sick gentleman. So in a few minutes, I was with him at the bedside and the case is a 56-year-old male who brought in by EMS with chest pain and dyspnea. Talking to the patient, he's been having chest pain for about 10 days. He was very sick, but I was able to get some history from him. Right now, his pain was substernal, intermittent, and pleuritic in nature, exacerbated by cough and deep inspiration. Talking to him a little bit more, he said his pain started more like exertional, but he felt his pain was musculoskeletal because he was working out more intense than usual at that time, and he did not seek medical attention. When I asked him what prompted him to call EMS and come to the hospital, he said, severe shortness of breath overnight. At baseline, the patient is actually previously healthy, previously fat. He exercises on a daily basis, as per his report, and he does not have a PCP. He didn't see any doctors, no significant past medical history, no surgical history, no allergies. He only took uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs on a PRN as needed basis. His family history was unremarkable, no premature CED, no sudden cardiac death, and no familial cardiomyopathies. He used to be a heavy smoker, 
And over the last few years, he said he switched into vaping three milligrams of nicotine a few times daily. Wow. Whenever you have somebody with these rapid onset symptoms, you definitely get your, your ears perked up. So a lot of things that are concerning about this gentleman, obviously the first thing that comes to mind is an MI. He doesn't have most of the risk factors, but however, he's a male in his mid ages. So that was the biggest concern at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And like Dan pointed out, this sort of severe chest pain is always difficult, right? Because there is such a rich differential diagnosis. You think about what's going on just anatomically in the chest, you know, from the skin to the back in terms of the possible ideologies. And there are several possibilities that can cause severe chest pain, but we cannot miss the ones that are acutely life-threatening, right? Like acute MI, as you said, Justice, but also pulmonary embolism, aortic dissection, pneumothorax. So there's so much richness here just to the presentation. And we look at you know his age and he's a middle-aged man, that's certainly a risk factor, but he really doesn't have much else by way of medical risk factors in terms of thinking about the things that lead to atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. You know, he was a former smoker and there is a story for vaping. And I think that we just are learning still the cardiovascular impacts of vaping. So I think that remains to be seen. But right now, you know, he also, the way he describes the pain is intermittent and pleuritic. Initially it was exertional, but now maybe not so much. That pleurisy, we can definitely see in MI if there is involvement of the pericardium with early pericarditis. But pleurisy itself, you might think about pneumonia with pleuritic involvement or pulmonary embolism with a pulmonary infarct or pleural inflammation. So I'm, you know, my ears are perked because on the one hand, I'm really concerned that this may be serious because he's coming in with progressive, severe chest pain. That word severe is concerning. But then at the same time, I'm trying to take it all in. You know, the vista of the possible ideologies of chest pain right now is still pretty broad. You bring very good points. I mean, history sometimes can be limited, but sometimes can be very helpful. The fact that this patient has been having chest pain for about 10 days started with some typical anginal component. He mentioned it was exertional in nature. The patient himself felt it could be musculoskeletal. And then later on, switched to pericardial component or pleurisy-like chest discomfort. I usually think in these scenarios as a late MI presentation that started as typical angina and with the irritation of the pericardium or as pericarditis later on, following MI is a possibility. Yeah, that's great. So it looks like we need to get some more data to help refine our differential. Exactly. So in physical examination, the patient was in a critical condition. Let me start with his vital signs. So he was hypotensive. In fact, I could not get an uninvasive blood pressure on him. He was somnolent, lethargic. He was tachycardic in a rapid tachyarrhythmia. It looked to be atrial fibrillation in the monitor with a heart rate between 130 and 150 fluctuating. He was mildly hypothermic, 94.9 Fahrenheit. He was tachypnic in the mid-20s. His GVP was very elevated, 15 plus with a positive hepatojugular reflux tachycardic, irregular with distant heart sounds, no appreciable murmurs. He had bibasilar rolls, no wheezing, and his extremities were cool with faint pulses, and his neuro exam was non-focal. Oh my gosh, guys, way to wake me up. Like We just had such a beautiful, calming hike. We're taking in the Vista from Hubler Tower, and you're hitting us with such a severe, profound presentation. I had no idea that we we're going to get into this, but on the scale of sick versus not sick, this patient is on the verge of death. So it's all hands on deck. Alarm bells are ringing. What are we thinking and what are we doing? Yeah, and, and sorry, before you jump in, I just want to comment on the way that you're describing these vital signs as if we're there right now. You know, 
I could tell that this case, whatever is going to happen and unfold is so palpable. It's almost like we are looking up at the monitor right now and we are looking at this critically ill patient. So thank you again, Mansoor, and really, again, alerting us to this idea, sudden onset chest pain and really a crashing, unstable patient. You have me at the edge of the seat. What is next? Yeah, absolutely. So first thing I did, I just called for help. I called my attendings. Dr. Ming was the attending on service. And I told her, please come here. This gentleman is very sick and he needs multiple people to help him out. Me and the ED physicians were at the bedside. Obviously, he was in in shock. So I was planning to do anything I can just to help him to get a blood pressure. So started resuscitation with IV fluids and inotropes empirically until we can figure out what's going on. I tried to cardivert him from his atrial fibrillation and see if that would help him hemodynamically. I did shock him twice, synchronized cardioversion, 150 followed by 300. It was working only briefly with minimal benefit. His 12th lead electrocardiogram showed rapid atrial fibrillation at 140 to 150 beats per minute, normal axis with ST segment and T-wave changes that was more pronounced in the right pericardial leads. You know, sometimes you will have ST changes related to the heart rate. But in this gentleman, as you can see from his EKG, the ST segment changes were more pronounced in leads V1, V2, V3, and a little bit in V4 with late transition of his R wave, suggestive of posterior ST elevation myocardial infarction, along with the rapid tachyarrhythmia. Yeah, you know, I think I would have done exactly the same things. And, you know, AFib with RVR, that's hypotensive. As we say, if you're unstable, get the cable, right? And in this situation, the patient kept reverting back into AFib RVR. And I imagine in that context, what's the chicken or the egg? Is a patient hypotensive because they're in an unstable rhythm? Or is the unstable rhythm a response to a hemodynamic trigger? And it sounds like in this case, the AFib RVR was a symptom of a other hemodynamic ideology rather than the cause of hypotension. And that's probably why it didn't work, although that was certainly the right thing to do. And this EKG, you know, for the audience, definitely take a look on the blog post to pull this up because this is classic for a posterior MI. Here, you have ST depressions and tall R waves. The mirror image of that, you know, you're taking a look at the EKG on the anterior chest, but the mirror image of that, what's happening in the back of the chest or the back of the heart is the exact opposite. Those R waves actually are posterior Q waves and the ST depressions and the anterior leads are posterior ST elevations. So this looks like all the world for a posterior ST elevation MI with a hemodynamic embarrassment and AFib RVR. So this is a hyper acute situation. Yeah. And now that we are isolating the infarct to the posterior wall, you got to ask, you know, posterior wall is an important wall, but to cause so much hemodynamic compromise, I'm kind of surprised. It could be a huge posterior involvement, but definitely uh, curious to see what is going on. And is there more that meets the eye to this particular patient's presentation? Exactly, Dan. So you hit the nail on the head. So my thought process at that time, we see STEMIs all the time. Luckily, during our time, the response is quick. Most of the patients are stable and we help them quickly. But this patient was in a very critical condition. So first we intubated him because of his respiratory failure. And then I decided just to bring a probe and do a point of care ultrasound with a limited echo and see what's going on. This patient clinical condition is out of proportion of a STEMI. So you think about, as you guys said, a mechanical complication of myocardial infarction, acute dissection, other forms of obstructive shock. A quick picture can serve like a thousand sentence and can help us really narrow down what's going on. 
And what I found was one of the most precious echo I did so far. So his EF was severely depressed, about 25, 30%. And then there was a fluid in his pericardial space, hyperechoic, echogenic material adherent to the inferior wall with tamponade physiology. There was RV collapse, RA collapse. There was significant variation in his tricuspid and mitral inflow. So at that point, our diagnosis really came down to this is either a free wall rupture complicating a late presenting ST elevation myocardial infarction, or the second thing to think about is acute aortic dissection dissecting into the pericardium and affecting his right coronary artery. So that's a great differential right off the bat. And, you know, I have to say so many times I've come across a situation where the patient has ST elevations and they may or may not have symptoms that are indicative of pericarditis, you know, like a typical fluoritic chest pain that gets worse with length backwards and better with length forwards, maybe a pericardial rub, maybe ESRS, CRP elevation. But there's always this question, is this ST elevation from an MI or is this ST elevation purely just from pericarditis? And I think the couple of hints on the EKG are very important when we make that differentiation because an MI, it certainly can lead to a post-MI pericarditis. So if one with a pericarditis is typically diffuse ST elevations with PR depression, the ST elevations tend to be concave rather than convex. And usually you don't have reciprocal ST depressions or Q waves. So the presence of ST depressions, the presence of posterior Q waves are all very concerning that this is a pericardial involvement in the context of uh, ischemic hit. And so very important to keep in mind here. Mansur, the way you're describing this echo as you describe the physical exam, you are taking us right here. And I have to say that this case is overlapped with a case that I had, a similar patient presentation. And I was at the bedside with the patient in cardiogenic shock in the setting of a posterior MI, and I popped the probe on the chest, and I actually saw a really great ejection fraction. I was thinking, how does this make any sense that my patient, who is for all intents and purposes in florid cardiogenic shock, has a good ejection fraction? And then I was like thinking a little bit more, and it was my first case like this, and I was like, well, if this patient is in cardiogenic shock, then blood is definitely not going forward. Blood is definitely going somewhere else. And if it's not going forward, where is it going? And I was thinking, I got to interrogate the mitral valve because pap rupture can be associated with posterior MI. And, and sure enough, I actually was so early on that I didn't exactly know what I was looking at, but I knew that this valve was not normal. And actually, we have recordings of this ED experience. So you could hear me going like, wow, that valve is not normal. When you take that probe and you put it down in the chest, especially when all things are going up in flames, you have your expectations and then the findings that you find, you really have to hunt the whole story. And your case really illustrates that so beautifully. Definitely interested in hearing what happened next. Exactly, Dan. We saw a hint of a possible posterior medial papillary muscle rupture on our echo. There was severe mitral regurgitation. At that point, we decided to call cardiac surgery for immediate surgical intervention because we're dealing with cardiac surgical catastrophe and a mechanical complication that needs immediate intervention. We took the patient for a stat emergent CTA to rule out aortic dissection. It was gated for aortic protocol, so there was no evidence of aortic dissection or aneurysm. The CT, in fact, showed similar findings to the bedside TTE. There was hemopericardium with tamponade physiology, transmural infralateral infarct. Radiology also reported there is a possible proximal left circumflex occlusion as the culprit for this MI. But it's important to note it was a gated aortic protocol, not a coronary CTA. 
So something I love about this case is that it helps to highlight the fact that having an acute coronary syndrome is not necessarily just an atherosclerotic disease. It was a good chance for us to look into the concept of aortic dissection into the coronaries. And it's also important to think about other potential etiologies of an ACS. You have to consider embolic MI, which is something that has been more recently in the limelight considering the COVID pandemic. So that's one thing that I like about the way we handled this case. Absolutely. Actually, I had a case that actually had a aortic dissection that ended up, unfortunately, dissecting into a coronary artery, and he actually presented as a STEMI. You know, these could be really, really, really challenging cases to have. And I'm really glad that prior to going into the OR, you sorted that out, you know, so that we can move forward and focus on the actual target a problem at hand. So kudos to the team and, and kudos to the ability to expeditiously think about these things and execute the diagnostic testing needed to get them to the next step. What is happening next? Oh my gosh. Yes. So at that point, we decided to take the patient to the OR. So in the OR, the patient had drainage to his pericardial space via sub-xiphoid approach. The surgeon did notice a significant amount of old and fresh clots with a significant amount of blood in the pericardial space. Just after he started to remove this blood, he did notice a significant hemodynamic improvement. And there was no evidence of frank rupture, but the surgeon did say he tried not to disrupt the clot that was adherent to his inferior wall because he was afraid of relieving the tamponade effect on that segment. And he was trying not to create a connection with the pericardial space, not to further the patient hemodynamic compromise. So at that point, the surgeon decided to stop he left the drain in place. Patient was hemodynamically getting significantly better. So we just decided to stop and chat with each other and decide on what is the next step. Wow. The whole heart here is falling apart. You have so many insults to cause hypotension. You have a posterior MI, obviously from a coronary culprit, that's actually causing myocardial dysfunction. And then you have a PAP rupture related to the ischemia that's just totally taking out the competence of the mitral valve, again, having the blood flow going backwards. You have the tamponade physiology that's basically constricting inflow into the left ventricle and causing all sorts of RV and LV filling problems. So you have uh, contractility issues, you have valvular issues, you have tamponade issues. And so obviously in an ideal world, you'd like to fix all at once. But you know, something that I learned from talking to surgeons is everything that they do is a whole different aspect of care. Every different aspect of cardiac surgery requires a whole different approach and a different area of going in. A full sternotomy would be very different. And so in this crashing patient, to choose what was going to be the best bang for this buck to see that, yes, maybe this patient has all these problems, cardiac dysfunction, valvular issues, and tamponade going on, but I think tamponade is what's causing the biggest issue right now. Let's fix that, relieve the obstruction, and then go from there. It's just something that is obviously incredibly commendable. Exactly. That's the point here, which was unique to this case, because this gentleman had multiple issues going on, as you pointed out. And it's so important to just take a step back and realize why this gentleman is in shock. And it seems like at that point, among these three major issues, that is pump failure, tamponade, and MR, the major contribution seems to be from the tamponade because as they remove the clot, the hemodynamics seem to have temporarily improved. 
And that's why the surgeon chose not to disrupt the clot and leave it there. And apparently, when he got out, his main statement was that he's stable. We didn't want to disrupt the clot. We can go back in and fix another day once he's better. He had end organ perfusion defects, lactic acidosis, so on and so forth. So we want to let him recuperate, put an IABP and support him. And so a quick question, what was the procedure they did? Was this a needle pericardiocentesis, like a percutaneous pericardiocentesis with a drain remaining in place? Was this a thoracotomy with a pericardial window? Was this a sternotomy? It was a sub-zephoid approach with pericardial drainage. And I see. apparently in these patients, pericardiocentesis in general with a hemopericardium, it's contraindicated because the common things in such an acute presentation, uh, mechanical rupture and, and dissection and draining blood could dislodge the clot that might actually be sealing off in such patients. And more frequently, it's not effective because there's a lot of clots which can't be drained through a needle. Yeah, and that's a really important point that a needle pericardiocentesis itself probably would not have been sufficient because of the organization of the blood and the clot formation within the pericardial space. But just to think about where we are right now, this patient was essentially falling off a cliff on the verge of PA arrest and really on his way to the morgue. And we identified through multimodality imaging and a multidisciplinary advanced heart team discussion what the most immediate intervention should be to bring him back to the cliff and very adequately restored some semblance of hemodynamic homeostasis. But let's be honest, the patient is still on the precipice of that cliff. So what do we do next? Because the patient still has probably severe MR and pump dysfunction. And you know we've temporized it, but we're definitely not out of the woods. We're still navigating through the fire. Yeah, exactly, Amit. So this was a temporizing measure. We're happy that his hemodynamics improved. As my colleague Srinivas just mentioned, a patient was in cardiogenic shock with multi-organ failure. He had shock liver. He had acute kidney injury. His lactic was elevated. It was improving, but it was elevated. We wanted to take advantage of allowing more time to allow for more healing, which would help the eventual repair. Had the patient not respond, we would have taken him sooner for surgery to repair the rupture and to replace the mitral valve. Because he had severe mitral regurgitation with a partial papillary muscle rupture, the surgeon did place an intra-aortic balloon pump for afterload reduction in an attempt to help him hemodynamically as well. His pressors requirement did improve, so he was on two pressors and one inotrope. We were able to de-escalate that to just one presser and one inotrope. Hemodynamically speaking, we were able to wean him off pressers in about two days. Mansoor, to your point, exactly the reason why one would wait in such a situation to allow for healing is to help the surgeon better delineate the infarcted tissue from healthy myocardium because most repairs, one of the core principles is to anchor the repair material over the viable myocardium, usually suture-less rather than sutures using glues which our patient got, a pericardial patch to the healthy myocardium. Great. So essentially what I'm hearing is, you know, now that we temporized the patient and took him back from falling over the cliff and brought him back to the precipice, our focus is going to be to try to temporize him conservatively with infusions and hemodynamic assessment and possible mechanical circulatory support so we can try to delay surgery if possible so that you can have a better surgical outcome. And if obviously the patient decompensates earlier to that, we may be pushed to go to surgery earlier and or consider other options like advanced heart failure therapies and or palliative care. So this makes perfect sense. How did the patient respond to your next few steps? So at this point, we have a final diagnosis. 
of a free world rupture. This is a really rare condition. In the past, it used to be quite common, about 6% of every patient presenting with an MI, but this has significantly gone down since the advent of the PCI era, and mortality has actually improved since then. These days, it's less than 1% incidence in STEMIs. This gentleman is not a typical patient that present like this. You know, the typical risk factors are older age, female. However, his main risk that made him at high risk would be his late presentation. So all of this being put together, we suspect that those times that he's been having exertional dyspnea over the past few days, these were probably times that he's been infarcting his myocardium. And at this point, it's now late presentation of an MI. And now he's coming with, you know, a complication of that. You know, as Mansour also mentioned, he also has a papillary muscle rupture. And as we will talk about as we go forward, this is also something you see in late presentation MIs. Yeah. So with this free wall rupture causing a hemopericardium, as well as a possible PAP rupture with acute severe MR, no wonder this patient was in such a world of hurt and we've got a temporizing measure. But what's the discussion about going to the cath lab urgently, emergently versus later on preoperatively? In general, coronary angiography is not indicated in someone who presents acutely or not necessary for someone to be taken to the OR immediately. But if there is time to perform, as in this gentleman, it would help the surgeon, especially in knowing what the coronary anatomy is, where the bypass can be done, and, and it helps better delineate infarcted myocardium to healthy myocardium. And Mansoor can take us over the angiographic findings. And so just to process what you're saying, you know, if this patient was having rather acute onset chest pain and dyspnea with those EKG findings of a posterior ST elevation, of course, in that setting, it would be an emergency, door to balloon time, we've got to revascularize, time is muscle, time is life situation. But in this setting, we have a clinical syndrome of exertional chest discomfort that worsened rather quickly. And we're formulating this as somebody who's already infarcted. This is a late presenting MI with a mechanical complication. And so time is no longer muscle. The territory is already probably infarcted. And the value of getting anatomy at this point, or defining the coronary anatomy rather, it would be to help surgical planning, but not necessarily acutely relevant for reperfusion as it would be in the acute setting. Exactly. Exactly. That's where I think this case is so important. The immediate visceral reaction is if we see a STEMI, patient is crashing, let's take him to the cath lab immediately. But it's important to you know, take a step back as Dr. Robinson, who was on call that day, he was also at bedside. We were all thinking, and then the simple act of putting the probe on with a pre-test probability of anticipating a complication changed the management drastically. You hit the buck there. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Amit. In a patient with 10 days of chest pain, infarct on the EKG, mechanical complications of MI, I think we need to address the mechanical complications and we do not need to delay them for the sake of the cath lab. So in our case, we took him to the OR, we helped him with the pericardial drainage. He was hemodynamically more stable. He was not out of the wood, but we performed the catheterization preoperatively. And I can walk you guys through the cath. So his left heart catheterization revealed that the culprit lesion was the proximal left circumflex, just right at the branching point of the first obtuse marginal, which was filling via right to left collaterals. The distal circumflex was also filling via faint collaterals from the right. Moving on to the LED, the LED had a med intermediate about 70% stenosis and also another 90% apical stenosis. 
The first diagonal had multiple intermediate lesions between 50 and 70% of the ostium, 90% of the inferior subdivision at the bifurcating vessel, as you can see. The RCA was dominant, had mid-50% stenosis, and another 40% distally. The PDA and the PLV from the right also had multiple intermediate stenoses. Yeah, that's a great read. And, you know, just looking over these images, which will be available to the audience on the blog post, the other findings I'm noticing are there's also a Swan-Gantz catheter as well as an intra-aortic balloon pump. And so, you know, this is just another example. We've discussed this so many times that there are certain situations where the Swan-Gantz catheter, the value it provides, the data provides is just immeasurable. And this is certainly one of those situations. And then also the intraortic balloon pump, there are a few indications for this. You know, one is just pump failure and being able to augment forward flow because of the counterpulsation. Two is improving coronary perfusion. So somebody with a refractory angina waiting for revascularization, for example. And then three, and very pertinent to this situation, are the mechanical complications of post-STEMI care. And so, you know, in this situation where you have a VSR, a PAP rupture with so much flow going backwards into the lungs or a ventricular septal rupture with blood going into the right side through a shunt, the intraortic balloon pump, independent of the pump function of the LV, can really improve forward flow and decrease either shunting to the RV for a VSR or regurgitation into the lungs from a PAP rupture with a severe MR. And so this is just a perfect example of one of the rare indications of a balloon pump that we don't come across so often. And just to reflect back, because it was such a great discussion on the timing of the cath and the decision-making processes that went into getting the right time to do that, maybe when he's more hemodynamically optimized, given that you weren't going to intervene and go to surgery is such a great point of discussion. And I just appreciate all of the thought that must have been going in at the time to figure that out and sort out this patient's hemodynamic status and optimize it for surgery. Just to add one more point to that, the choice of mechanical support was IABP. And unfortunately, there's little other choice Practically, you know, impeller is not a good choice when someone had a LV free wall rupture because impeller sits in the LV across the aortic valve and you wouldn't want to put another mechanical device in a wall that is ruptured but concealed by a clot. It could potentially turn it into an open wall rupture due to mechanics of it. And should this patient have severe ongoing end organ damage, we would think of ECMO, especially hypoxic respiratory failure in a way to assist cardiopulmonary support. We would think of ECMO, but unfortunately, even ECMO worsens the LV wall stress and loads it rather than unloading it. Therefore, ECMO is not really a good choice in a sense for these patients. Yeah, that's such a nuanced point, Srini. I'm so glad you brought that up because essentially with the ECMO, you're taking blood out of a central vein and dumping it into a central artery and you're massively increasing the afterload. And so by increasing the LV pressures, you can essentially worsen or propagate unstable free wall rupture. One option that can be considered potentially is a tandem heart. Essentially, what you're doing is instead of sucking blood out from a central vein, you go from the venous side transeptal into the LA. And so your inflow cannula is actually sucking blood out from the LA. And it's a really nice device that provides all the other functions of uh, ECMO with the RV support, LV support, and gas exchange capabilities, but will actually reduce the preload and filling pressures in the LV. And so that's something you can consider, but certainly is more complicated and that requires transeptal rupture and is not available readily everywhere. That's a great point. Okay, so at this point, we've done the initial therapeutic maneuver of draining the pericardium to decrease the tamponade physiology. We have the patient temporized now with intraortic balloon pump. We have hemodynamic parameters from the Swan-Gantz catheter. We've defined the anatomy. We understand this patient has multivessel disease, but specifically with a flush-occluded circumflex artery. Where do we go from here? 
So you guys all bring very good points. We did not need to escalate his hemodynamic support. In fact, we were able to wean down his intra-aortic balloon pump in about 48 hours. We came down significantly on his presser and inotropic support. Over the same timeline, we extubated. I can give you his right heart cath numbers at 48 hours. We love right heart cath numbers. <laughs> yeah, so his RA was 6. His PA was 24 over 10 with a width of 10. His pulmonary artery pulsatility index was calculated at 2.3. His mixed venous saturation was 70. And his calculated cardiac output using fixed formula was 5.7 with a cardiac index of 2.8. His calculated cardiac power output was 0.8. So as you can see, it became clear that the cause of this patient's shock initially was more because of tamponade because his numbers afterwards were not suggestive of shock. We were able to come down significantly on his hemodynamic supports, inotropic support, and vasopressors in 48 hours. Keep in mind, these numbers were with ongoing inotropic support via Merunone at 0.375 microgram per kilogram per minute, along with the intra-aortic balloon pump. So it gave us a general idea that the patient was improving hemodynamically, but he needs more help. So we're happy with the progress, but we're not going to stop there. At this point in the case, again, we've sort of temporized the acute hemodynamic insult, and then we're in a holding pattern with a pretty advanced support with inotropic agents and an intraortic balloon pump. You know, another consideration is for free wall rupture, there is a thought that the acute setting, their tissue is friable and inflamed and potentially even necrotic. And so delaying surgery in the right context may be beneficial we have the luxury of doing that because the patient is relatively stable and we have some control. But uh, what were the next series of events and steps you guys took? Because obviously he can't stay here with a balloon pump for the rest of his life. Yeah, exactly. So it became apparent to us the patient was getting better hemodynamically. So we were able to wean him down the hemodynamic support. We explanted the intraortic balloon pump, came down significantly on his IV vasopressor. We wind them down completely in about four days. The thought process at that time was to continue conservative management for a few days. The surgeons preferred waiting a little bit longer to allow more healing of the infarcted tissue before bringing him back for a repair. So we obtained another echo one day before his surgery. And as you can see, a large pseudoaneurysm in the infralateral wall. I'm looking at this now, and the pseudoaneurysm space is more than half of the total LV volume space. And it's just incredible to look at. So definitely people have to look at this. It almost looks like another four chamber. It's like unbelievable. You see like, <laughs> yeah. like another ventricle. Yeah. So I think this picture speak more about what happened and what was the pathophysiology, how was the patient presented and what kind of a subtype he falls into. And I think my colleague Yasser will teach us more about this. Absolutely. It's a fascinating case so far. And as we go deep into the case, we have learned so much about this case and definitely some innovative ways of management of such a sick patient. Do you mind also just defining a pseudoaneurysm? Because that term confused me for the longest time. Right. So when you have a rupture in the free wall, it could result in blood getting out of the free wall and eventually accumulating outside in the pericardium. So this would result in almost immediate death in most of those patients if there is a free wall rupture with an open communication to the pericardium. 
Now, what happens in certain patients that the free wall rupture, in a way, results in a contained hematoma outside, which is called the epicardial hematoma, so that the visceral pericardium actually covers part of the wall which is ruptured and does not allow a free communication. This can develop into a pseudoaneurysm in which the only thing holding this blood pool outside the LV wall is thin visceral pericardium. And if it stabilizes the hemodynamics, this is what you call the pseudoaneurysm. So the reason it's called pseudoaneurysm, it does not have the normal boundaries of normal heart muscle. In fact, the only thing covering it is just the pericardium and thereby forming an epicardial hematoma. So in terms of the way this forms, it really depends on the hemodynamics of the chamber which is involved and obviously it also involves how long this insult has been carried on. So we have typically seen that patients who present late for one or the other reason, they developed a contained free wall rupture and leading to the pseudoaneurysm. Our case could be one of them because he's a patient who has no prior cardiac history and this is his first infarct, which is one of the risk factors for this type of presentation. The only other type of free wall rupture that could potentially present in a patient who is in cardiac shock but alive would be a bleeding infarct in which there is a slow ooze coming off from the wall but no real frank communication. So interestingly, this patient was lucky in a way that the blood was pulled outside and they was covered by this visceral pericardium and developed into the hematoma and later developed a pseudoaneurysm. So we know that the free wall rupture can affect pretty much any chamber of the heart, the ventricles as well as the atrial. But most commonly, it affects the lateral left ventricular wall. And usually, it involves the dominant coronary artery. Most of the cases, it is right coronary artery. But as we have seen in our case, it was the circumflex. Two things come into play to make this happen. One, obviously, are the hemodynamic forces. That's why the left ventricle is far more commonly affected just because it generates higher hemodynamic forces and secondly the inflammation that carries on because as we have seen that this normally presents anywhere between two to five days after the initial insult as just as earlier pointed out the overall incidence is about one to six percent in total and these patients present around two to five days after an acute insult prior to febrilytics and reperfusion it used to be around five days on average but now we have seen it around two days on average. Even having successfully reperfused, there is still a small risk of these patients developing the free wall rupture just because the original insult was there and medical attention was little delayed. We have seen that it can actually, for about 15% of in-hospital death among patients with acute MI, and this is actually only second common cause after the pump failure. Now, interestingly, most of the patients, if they survive the first two weeks where the mortality reaches up to 82%, they do pretty well. And it tells us that even with good surgical care and the advanced device supports that we have, these patients can reach up to a survival rate of 75% at the end of one year. So prompt diagnosis and prompt surgical intervention is crucial in these cases because the earlier you identify the case, you streamline the management process and the better the chance of survival. To summarize, since the patient was hemodynamically improving and we were able to wean down his hemodynamic support, IV vasopressor and inotropic support, the decision was made to wait for at least few days to allow more healing of the myocardium. The reason will be it will be easier to repair after the healing process and after the infarcted tissue is more fibrosed. Because think about it, surgeon always describe suing a freshly infarcted tissue as like a hamburger. It will be nearly impossible to repair. So 
in our case, it was a combination of optimizing the patient medically, make sure it's the proper time and plan right. So eventually we waited for a few days and the patient underwent a cabbage times one with Lima to his LED because as you guys remember, the LED had mid and distal obstructive lesions. He underwent a mitral valve replacement with a mechanical valve and also large pericardial patch repair of the pseudoaneurysm. His post-operative course was uncomplicated. There was no immediate or late complication. The patient was discharged to rehabilitation in good condition. He was seen in follow-up without major limitations, and he has been doing well since. You know, this is such an incredible case for so many reasons. And I think chief among them was not only the profound nature of the presentation, but really the complex decision-making that one has to make with a coordinated heart team with very little data to guide you, right? I mean, all the data here is from registries. There's no randomized controlled trial of what you do with these patients, right? And so I think very effectively, the team came together, did a very quick, appropriate bedside assessment, figured out the acute hemodynamic lesion culprit, which is the tamponade, alleviated it. And then with hemodynamic assessment and hemodynamic guide, supported the patient with inotropes and mechanical circulatory support, to which thankfully the patient responded well, giving you the time you needed to very deliberately delay surgery to allow wound healing. So that way the necrotic tissue would be in a stage where you can actually take in and take up the sutures for a pericardial patch and allow proper surgical outcomes. And so I congratulate you all. And I think it's worth reviewing just real quick that ultimately this was a post-MI complication and there are several post-MI complications that we should be aware of for our patients because, you know, the patient comes in with a STEMI. Why does the patient stay overnight? Why is the patient on telemetry? Why do we get that post-STEMI echocardiogram and carefully evaluate them? And so I break them down into a few different buckets, right? And so post-MI uh, complications, one is myocardial, right? So essentially just pump failure. It could be acute cardiogenic shock and or delayed heart failure later on. The next is electrical, right? You can have both tachyarrhythmias, which is an important source of mortality for these patients, and as well as bradyarrhythmias, depending on either AV nodal dysfunction or an ischemic hit to the SA node or the AV node. Then there's valvular, which is, in my mind, ischemic MR, right? And so you can get ischemic MR just from the posterior lateral wall not working well, causing postremedial papillary muscle dysfunction, and so you just get a functional ischemic MR. Then there's pericardial, right? We can have early pericarditis or delayed Dressler syndrome which may or may not present with a tamponade physiology. And then structural, which is what we're talking about here primarily, which is all the different ruptures, right? The free wall rupture, the ventricular septal rupture, the papillary muscle rupture. Here we had both the free wall rupture and the papillary muscle rupture, as well as within structural and aneurysm formation. That aneurysm, classically from LED territory infarct, you get the apical aneurysm, and that itself can predispose to three different problems. One is VTVF arrhythmias as a substrate, stasis causing coagulopathy, and also just heart failure because of a mechanical issues with the contractility. So this is just a great example of why the care of the post-STEMI patient is really important in so many different ways and really a terrific example of what you can do with a proper heart team, rational judgment, a bedside evaluation, and high-yield interventions. Team, that was an incredible discussion really vivid. I feel like I was, I know I'm supposed to be relaxing in this tower <laughs> and looking at the panoramic view, but I feel like I was in the OR. I feel like I was practically looking at gelatinous myocardium, which was repaired because we waited. Guys, tell us a little bit about why you chose cardiology and also why you chose cardiology specifically at UConn. So to answer your question, why, why cardiology specifically, I personally love cardiology because 
it will give you the opportunity to help patients see the outcome quickly. It has procedural aspect, the imaging aspect, the medical aspect in one field. And I just love it. Cardiology is amazing. I enjoy it more than uh, other fields. I was attracted to it early on in my residency. Why at UConn specifically? I think UConn first, the faculty here, I know if you ask most of the fellows elsewhere, they will say faculty. And this is also very true at UConn, very supportive, very friendly. I see them like not just as colleagues, I see them also as friends and mentors, not one or two many mentors. You have the combination of an academic setting at UConn, John Dempsey, but also you have the breadth of practicing more efficiently in a private practice and seeing patients from urban and suburban and rural places in just one program. There is nothing you won't see within the Yukon system. The location of the place is also very good. It's in New England, but more on the affordable side, combination of great scenery, great cities and great towns with a lot of great places nearby. Connecticut, New York City is less than two hours away, Rhode Island, Boston, New Hampshire, Vermont, they're all within a few hours reach. So it's a very nice location to live in. So for me, basically, I believe my best part of med school was when we started learning about pathophysiology, especially cardiac pathophysiology. And that was what made me realize at that point that I wanted to be a cardiologist. As you see, this a case like this that we just discussed, it does go a long way to show the importance of this hemodynamics. And these are things that you learn in your basic science in med school, and you carry that along, especially in cardiology. And there's never a dull moment in this course. So I believe cardiology is probably the best way to go. It is my passion, and I'm happy I'm here. UConn is a great place to be. One of my favorite times in UConn, which unfortunately COVID has taken that a little bit away from us, is the journal clubs that we have at some of the faculties' houses where we drink a, a glass or two of wine and review some cases, have some food. is a really collegial place and definitely will not trade it for any other experience. Absolutely. I second Justice and Mansoor. In terms of my liking for cardiology, I always wanted to have something concrete. And it is because of cases like these, actually, I was really pulled towards cardiology because you got to make very cautiously correct decisions. And if you get everything right, you can make a huge difference to patients. And we have seen patients who was about to die eventually was able to go back to his life. I don't think any other field offer all this. So that was one of my biggest draws towards cardiology, that we can intervene at the very critical moments in patients' lives and we can make a huge difference and actually get a favorable outcome. In terms of why UConn, well, I did my residency in Connecticut, so I loved the state. I loved the area already. Great schools. I'm a father of five-year-old, so one of the main attractions of UConn was obviously great schools around and great family gatherings and community. So that was one of the other things. But coming to the program, and I second Mansoor and Justice, the faculty and the environment which I saw was purely friendly. I never for a day felt that I was actually working. I feel that every day it's just like an opportunity for me to come and enjoy myself. And things are laid in such a smooth manner and our attendings and our staff, everybody who's involved really looks after each other. And I feel that I just leave my home and come to another home. And I'm so fortunate to be here and be a part of this program and work with these fantastic people. Exactly, Asa. You know, if I might say, 
I third to all the three people who spoke about the program and Connecticut in general. The program is wonderful. I just don't mean it for the sake of saying it. It's so collegial, especially, you know, the faculty. They insist on calling them by their first names. It just breaks down all barriers. I've grown up in an environment in southern India where, you know, teachers and, and parents are on a separate pedestal and, and, and they deserve all the respect. But, you know, just the channel of communication gets so so easy, you know, which simple gestures such as, you know, having them call by their first names. It's so great. And to Justice's point, you know, my favorite time at the program is actually we discuss our journal clubs, you know, in the pre-COVID era, of course, and attending plays. And we have a couple of drinks, we have pizza, we have pasta, we have dessert. And we all sit down and it's like, it doesn't feel like academics. It feels like a game night. For me, you know, it's the most, it's the most delightful part of the program. And then every day, the learning atmosphere is so conducive. Another thing to highlight, I think, is the autonomy. There's a balance between having a patient complexity and patient's autonomy. That's a difficult thing to strike balance. And I think if the attendings, such as at UConn, if they're so experienced and so good with fellows, we feel the confidence that if we are in doubt, we call them. Mansoor, who was you know, close to the end of the second year, almost third year, called the PD immediately at 7 a.m. and all were there at bedside. That just is an example of how good the atmosphere is. Now, why cardiology, me personally, gives me a sense of meaning. Cardiology is the most interesting and to me, most passionate. And I'm so glad I matched. And another added point is like, I have family here close by in Connecticut. That made one of the key points for me. Our program gives a lot of importance to family. So I can't just put in words how grateful I am to be here. It's been a tremendous journey. Srini, Yasir, Justice, and Mansur, this has been just such an excellent conversation and just so informative to all of us. Your teaching has just been mind-blowing and incredible. And two of you mentioned that like love for that journal club vibe that's sitting around the situation. And, and Amit and I and the whole Cardinals team really, really miss that and really feel like you know COVID has taken that away from us. Obviously, so much more for so many different people. And one of the reasons why we thought of this whole project was to recreate some sort of vibe and some sort of feeling, which is why we always go to a special place in a special city with the people that come on the show. And you really helped accomplish that today. And we want to thank you so much for being here and joining us today. Thank you for allowing us opportunity to discuss and to know you guys. And moving forward, I think it was a great experience and we learned a lot through this case and obviously talking to you guys and knowing each other i think it's fantastic absolutely brilliant exactly thank you so much for having us thank you very much guys for your time your efforts i know a lot goes into the editing and organization it's incredible it's like i feel like i'm a fellow in all these places where you guys recorded cases i can learn from other programs that's incredible thank you very much we cannot really thank you enough but we are very grateful thank you so much Now to the ECPR segment with our faculty expert, Dr. Peter Robinson. He's an interventional cardiologist here at the University of Connecticut Health Center. Hi, this is Peter Robinson. I'm an interventional cardiologist at UConn Health at John Dempsey Hospital here in Farmington, Connecticut. First off, I want to thank you for having us here on your podcast. We appreciate the opportunity and also want to say I believe that the fellows did a great job presenting this case and bringing up the salient points. We're lucky to have such bright, enthusiastic, and importantly, inquisitive cardiology fellows here at UConn. So if I could simply piggyback on what was already discussed and try to highlight some points that I think 
present some great learning opportunities. The first is the acute decision-making at the point of presentation in the ER. I think this highlights the need to be able to think outside of standard algorithms in the setting of an acutely ill individual. I think it's very easy through our training to start believing that a purely linear algorithmic approach is always necessary or appropriate. In other words, if this diagnosis or findings do this, if A, then B, if B, then C, etc. As we tend to find with increased clinical experience, things rarely are so clean cut or black and white, and that reality often lives in the gray spaces or nuanced places. It's important to embrace this or at a minimum at least understand this occurs. For instance, it would have been very easy to see this case as someone with chest pain and an EKG consistent with a posterior MI who's in heart failure, all of which means A, go directly to the cat lab, and B, get that artery open as soon as possible. That's what we're trained to do. I would argue that had this happened, the outcome would have been very much different. Importantly, it had to be recognized fairly quickly that, number one, his symptoms were not, in fact, recent, meaning in the last 24 hours, and they actually changed in character and severity within the last 12 to 24 hours. And number two, as was pointed out, he was just too sick to be explained by an acute single-vessel occlusion. At this point, someone said, this doesn't make sense. And at that point, you need to stop the usual train of events, door-to-balloon time, etc. That stopping is sometimes the hardest thing to do, but it's what a good clinician does, and it's what allowed this individual to have a positive outcome in the setting of what turned out to be catastrophic events. The second thing I'd like to highlight was the surgeon's role, which involved a novel or unique solution to the problem at hand. We're not surgeons, but I do think we can learn from this approach to this patient with a rare life-threatening condition for which there is no and will never be a randomized controlled trial to tell you what to do. Based on the acute findings and the surgeon's knowledge of acute outcomes from this condition and his prioritization of the most important acute needs, he proceeded with a novel approach partly based on the hemodynamic response in the OR to his first intervention and his findings at that time. As was discussed, the surgeon elected to perform a partial evacuation of the pericardial space, a novel approach, which did relieve the acute tamponade, but preserving the clot that he felt was overlying the infarcted region found at the time of his investigation. Without a doubt, this was a gamble. It was risky, but it is hard to argue with the outcome. That's not the same thing as advocating for this approach the next time it's encountered. But for this singular event, in retrospect, it was really a fascinating and novel and unique approach that possibly saved this man's life. I think it's fascinating that the surgeon recognized that his acute shock state and development of multi-organ system failure was the factor most likely to determine his outcome. This is based on his knowledge of outcomes going on pump in this state and his knowledge of the difficulty of repair of this contained rupture. Therefore, he elected to prioritize the correction of a state of shock before definitive surgery. Once he recognized there was no ongoing or active bleeding 
hence his desire to leave the clot overlying the rupture intact. Thankfully, he not only survived another day or two, but two to three weeks, which is not recommended, but occurred somewhat out of necessity and may have actually contributed to a good outcome. It is really hard to say. Those are the two main points I wanted to emphasize or highlight, and both speak to the art of medicine, the need for us to avoid simple linear algorithmic thinking, especially in our critically ill patients. You're not going to have a randomized control trial for every decision point you come across. You have to be able to problem solve based on the data presented to you and critically evaluate really two questions. Number one, what's really going on here? which is a slightly different question than what's the diagnosis. And the second question is how should I prioritize what to do next or what's most important? So once again, thank you so much for the opportunity to present this extraordinary case. Thank you. And now a message from our program director, Dr. Joyce Ming. She's the best program director in the country and our mentor. Here's her message. Welcome. My name is Joyce Meng. I'm the Cardiology Fellowship Director of University of Connecticut Health Center. We are located in Hartford, Connecticut, which is an attractive mid-sized city with easy access to Boston, New York, and miles of beautiful hiking trails. Our program has been in existence for over 30 years. We provide vigorous training, but also a very welcoming learning environment. We are each other's biggest fans Our attendings believe that our fellows are the best things about our jobs, and our fellows always have each other's backs. We train in diverse settings. The fellows rotate through a high-volume inner-city hospital with a young and underinsured population. They also practice in a wealthy suburban area seeing elderly patients. They work very closely with faculty members, but also have exposure to private practices. We believe that this design provides our fellows with the breadth and depth needed to be successful in the next phase of their careers. Fellows rotate through high-volume centers in all areas of cardiology. They are exposed to bread-and-butter cases, but also participate in care of complex patients with structural heart disease, advanced heart failure, adult congenital heart problems, etc. They have plenty of hands-on experience with opportunities to perform many procedures, Third-year fellows have six months of elective time that they can use to pursue their particular area of interest. Cardiology fellowships have similar structures. I believe what distinguishes our program is a family-like atmosphere. We think of fellows as junior colleagues. We love to learn from each other during conferences, rounds, and social settings. One of the favorite part of my job is having our monthly journal club in faculty members' houses prior to the COVID pandemic. We cook for each other and welcome the fellows as we discuss recent advances in cardiology over a glass of wine. We have also supported several fellows who are mothers with young children during their training. We're proud to train a diverse group of fellows with their own distinct needs to become excellent cardiologists. We hope you enjoy the case discussion and consider our program. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the CardioNerds case report series. 
be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Vivian Verghese, internal medicine senior resident at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, read and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.